Good evening, and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website, online at independent.org, I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T dot O-R-G. I'm joined by my co-host, Amber Gregarian. Hi, John. It's great to be here with you, and welcome to all of our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. We have a jam-packed show today with some fantastic guests. In our first segment, we'll speak with Socialist City Council member Alexa Aviles about the latest from hurricane-ravaged Puerto Rico, as well as her thoughts on the city's handling of the massive influx of migrants from the border and the city council investigation she is leading into the latest scandal at the New York City Housing Authority. Then, in our second segment, we'll look back on the life and legacy of anti-racist scholar and activist Jeffrey Perry, who died over the weekend. We will hear from Shauna Hearn, who was friends with Perry for 50 years. And in our final segment, we'll speak with Andrew Tilson, Executive Director of the Workers Unite Film Festival. The film festival begins October 7th at Cinema Village Theater and comes at a time when labor strikes and organizing are surging, and the popularity of unions is at its highest in more than 50 years. And now we turn to our first guest, Alexa Aviles, Democratic Socialist City Council member whose South Brooklyn district encompasses Red Hook, Sunset Park, Greenwood, and parts of Windsor Terrace, Diker Heights, and Borough Park. She's right in the middle of a bunch of issues we want to catch up on, including the latest from Puerto Rico, the city's response to the influx of migrants from border states, and the latest disturbing news from the New York City Housing Authority, which she oversees as chair of the City Council's Committee on NYCHA. Alexa, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, John. Great to be here. Yes. So we wanted to start with uh, Puerto Rico. There was a rally yesterday at Foley Square uh, on behalf of the island. Uh, The Indies' Katie Pruden was there. Let's listen along, and then we'll get your response. Puerto Rico's colonial status in the United States. 
That was a Bariqua drummer who played for much of the rally, one of the rally's speakers, and then lastly, a protester who attended the rally. And the music gets a bit loud towards the end of the last clip, but the protester finishes off by saying, as long as Puerto Rico is a colony, Puerto Rico will not get necessary funding for infrastructure. Puerto Rico will not get the necessary leadership to take care of its people. So on that note, Councilmember Alex Aviles, what is your response to what the protesters had to say? And also, what are you hearing from family and friends on the island about the conditions there. Thank you so much, Amba. I was there yesterday with those protesters. So oh, thank you. Thank you for your coverage. Um, obviously, 100% agree. What we're seeing is colonialism at its finest. And what you also heard on that clip is disaster colonialism at its finest, both mm-hmm. Both things we have been experiencing for a very, very long time. And Huracan Maria, uh, that happened really five years almost to the day of, of Fiona hitting the island, uh, really brought to bear all the situation, how colonialism shows up just everywhere in our lives. Um, you know, recovery was for American corporations not for the Puerto Rican people. And and what we were particularly demanding at that rally yesterday was FEMA decided that it would pick and choose municipalities that would be covered. Um, and I said, how very colonial of them to decide who gets aid and who doesn't, right, when the whole island has never even recovered from the beginning uh, from Hurricane Maria and the fiscal crisis, which, again, is a whole other story we could talk about. Um, so we're demanding full coverage of the island. Um, and we've talked with, we, we wrote a letter at the city council level to ask for a waiver of the Jones Act, which, you know, we need, we need, um, diesel fuel on the island and only American ships can come into our ports. Uh, another colonial relic, uh, that the people of Puerto Rico pay for on a daily basis. We pay more for goods and services because things have to come in on American ships. Um, so the letter asked for a waiver for this humanitarian crisis right now, but it needs to go. The Jones Act needs to end. Right. And what what are you hearing from the island? You grew up in uh, Bayamon. Uh, are you in touch with uh, family and friends there or elsewhere? On yes. The yes. So thankfully, uh, my family is OK. Um, you know, everyone is on edge um, because the water and electricity are on and off. We hear the numbers. This, man- this many people were restored. But the truth of the matter is that it's not permanent restoration. It may be on for two hours and then it's off for four hours. And this has been the state of affairs for Puerto Ricans since Huracan Maria. Right. The island actually didn't have power for almost a year, a good portion of the island. Could you imagine that happening here? People lose their minds. Right. So, um, you know, it's up the southern parts of the island, right? Flooding, massive landslides. Um, There was some improvement because people were a little bit more prepared for possibilities. But in mass, our island and our people are traumatized and truly need a very different recovery that centers them. And, uh, you know, the island's natural resource. We need not be an island that is investing in fossil fuel infrastructure. We have to have renewable energies that are grounded in community. Right. And we also want to uh, pivot to another uh, community that's in need, which is uh, the, the migrants uh, that have been 
uh, bust into New York uh, Port Authority in massive numbers uh, over the uh, last few months, uh, border states by Republican governors. And first of all, uh, I understand uh, there's a, a site uh, being set up in, in your district uh, for some of the asylum seekers. You got to visit that yesterday. Uh, can you yes. tell us uh, what you saw? Yeah, we do. We do have a site in our district. Um, and, you know, we have been advocating furiously, you know, whether it's uh, our shelter residents who are in shelter um, or asylee residents that everyone be treated with dignity and have access to what they need. We know that hotel sites are not appropriate shelter for families or for anyone, certainly not in the long term. And we see, you know, people are staying in shelter for long, longer and longer periods of time. So, you know what, it's a, um, it's, it's not a great situation. It is a shelter. And, you know, I think it's many people are really grateful to have a bed that is safe where they can be with their children. Um, but it is not a long-term solution. So I am proud that our, our local government is extending that hand and welcoming, uh, other humans, right? Really trying to extend, um, sanctuary and support, but we have a long way to go. We are not prepared to provide the full scale of services that people need, right? For everything from food, which very much looks like a kind of a school lunch, which any New York City child will tell you, yuck. <laughs> no, thank mm. you. Um, right. To like, you know, what are the services that we have locally that really can support language access, right? It was a very bumpy road uh, in the first couple of weeks for that facility. Didn't have language access, didn't have, you know, it wasn't up and running. The city is scaling up very quickly to try to receive the numbers of people that are coming in. Um, so that has not been without pain, but ultimately, you know, hotel spaces are not shelter, long-term shelter. And what are your overall thoughts on how the Adams administration in the city has been responding to this influx? And and what are your comments on the uh, proposal of, I think it's no longer on the table, but the proposal of having the migrants out on cruise ships um, and then now with the suggestion of a tent city in the Orchard Beach parking lot in the Bronx? Yeah, I'm mortified by either of those things, right? I always think about these things about like, where would I want a family member to be in an orchard parking lot or on a cruise ship is doesn't feel like an acceptable response for a city with as much resources um, at its disposal as we have. So I understand the situation is unprecedented, right? And folks are coming in. Uh, there is a constant flow. I think we're well over 10,000 individuals at this point with many school-aged children. Look, I think we have to continue to receive people with dignity and do our best to respond. I think the state and the federal government has to help New York City. Um, you know, I, it is a huge uh but a scaling up of services that we're doing here. Um, and, and folks are to capacity. We know our human service sectors was to capacity before and pretty underwater, even prior to them. So we've got to get the money on the ground to people who will be engaging with the asylees in communities and our state and federal partners have to really jump in wholeheartedly. And the, the rest of the state also has to support you know, adequate relocation and sheltering of, of folks that come here. Right. And now, 
there are, of course, people uh, who see uh, the migrants as, if not a threat, at least as a, a, a drain on resources or a threat to jobs. And uh, this you know, view is not only shared, I think, among like the white MAGA types in places like Texas and Florida, but it, it gets some traction in immigrant communities as well. How how do you address that uh, kind of uh, primal concern about scarcity of jobs, resources, et cetera? Yeah, thank you, thank you. It is true, and it it it, it breaks my heart, right? Because we, I you know, I, I think many people do that, right? Our communities do that as well, and so I remind everyone that every last human deserves dignity. And that we are in a very wealthy city, right? We are in a, a city with an abundance of resources. And this is a matter of allocation. It's a matter of being creative. And it, we shouldn't have to be choosing whether it's, you know, a longtime resident or new arrival, right? We are a welcoming city. We can do both. So it can be an and situation and it's hard and folks are scared of change, right? But I think the more that we can, um, really support like this collective understanding of both our present and our future, the better we'll be for it. But it's not easy. It's not easy. And we're always going to get the us, them. And sadly, the, you know, the politics will play out that way. And I think the fear mongers will continue to press those messages, right? That really kind of trigger bad behavior. Um, so I think, you know, I'm just going to be a counterweight and continue to remind we are a city with a hundred billion dollar budget. Right. Right. We are a resource. We have a government that is has incredible resources. Yes, we have challenges, but we can meet those challenges. I have no doubt. Right. And, and, and also and we're, we're talking about uh, scarcity of resources and uh, uh, all, all of that. Uh, another area that you're involved with is chair of the uh, city council committee on NYCHA, which, of course, has been starved for resources for decades. And we just recently learned that. The Jacob Reese houses on the Lower East Side, uh, the, the reports of uh, arsenic tainted water. You held a, a hearing last week. Uh, can you give us an update uh, on that situation? And uh, do you see any uh, tie between sort of the way NYCHA is uh, disinvested in and, and, and Puerto Rico is treated as a colony as well? Uh. Thank you. Absolutely. This is all all part of, you know, what capitalism does to people um, and the systems that it uses. Right. To to not center people, but profit. Um, so it, it truly does connect all these things. Uh, you know, I think, you know, the NYCHA situation is really just another another example of an agency that has, again, been disinvested in where there is really a lack of oversight and accountability throughout the system. And in some ways you could see, you know, it is our greatest asset in New York City. It is like, you know, our social housing where low income people can actually live, right? Despite very well-known challenges for most of New Yorkers, it still has hundreds of thousands of people on a waiting list, uh, both both because that is the only housing that will keep them here in the city that they love and they built, um, and because they want to be here. Right. So I think, you know, this, this hearing really just kind of demonstrated the lengths that we have to go, um, the commitment, the full throated commitment that our city, our state and our federal 
level governments have to make to public housing. Uh, we can no longer continue to kind of uh, cover cover the sky with our hand, which I think, you know, some levels of government actually like to do and, and think they're de- being a good partner. Uh, but there's a, there's a lot of work to do. And, and what, what the hearings also kind of blossomed was a real problem around contracting and oversight of contracts and how much, you know, work is getting pushed out to contracts and the agency's capacity, right? Doesn't even have sufficient operational capacity to meet its own mandate, right? To make sure that residents get the services and that contractors are providing the services. So the same behavior we're seeing in Puerto Rico, with, you know, the disaster capitalists we're actually seeing here, right, in NYCHA, in NYCHA developments where these contractors are coming in, they get these lucrative contracts, no one's holding them to account, and the work is, in many cases, shoddy. That doesn't mean there aren't good actors, but very much the same behavior. Okay. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there for now, but this story will continue to follow. Uh, Alexa Aviles, City Council member from District 38 in South Brooklyn, thank you so much for joining us again on WBAI Radio. Thank you both. This is really a joy and a pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Thank right, you. We'll be back after a short musical break with our next guest. That was Eleanor Rigby, performed by Ray Charles. You're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM, and I'm your host, Ambigar Garian, joined with my co-host, John Tarleton. In our second segment, we're going to talk about the life and legacy of Dr. Jeffrey Perry, who passed away over the weekend. Perry was an independent, working-class scholar whose work focused on the role of white supremacy as a retardant to progressive social change and on the centrality of struggle against white supremacy to progressive social change efforts. Perry wrote and spoke in particular on two of the most important thinkers on race and class in the 20th century, Hubert Harrison and Theodore W. Allen, both of whom we will hear more about shortly. Joining us today to talk more about Perry, as well as Hubert Harrison and Theodore W. Allen, is Perry's friend of 50 years, Sean Ahern. Sean is also a retired public school teacher and member of the New York City Coalition to finally end mayoral control. John, welcome to 99.5 FM. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. First of all, um, of course, our condolences for the loss of your friend of many years, Jeffrey Perry. Thank you. It was a it was a great loss, but he has left he has left us a lot of stuff to work on. Right. So so tell us about that. Um, for starters, talk about how you met Jeffrey Perry, what kind of person he was, and what your collaboration looked like over the past five decades, and uh, and and how you see his legacy. 
Uh, I met him in um, in New Jersey uh, around probably around 1972-73. Uh, he had just um, he was a member of the Puerto Rican Socialist Party. He had he's older than me. He had done a number of different things before that. He had uh, hitchhiked through South America. Was on the Van Cerrimos Brigade. He had graduated from Princeton University. He was from a working class family in Paramus. He played basketball. He was a New Jersey athlete, like a sort of a star high school athlete and, um, regular church going kid, you know, where he was like the first in his class, first in his family to graduate from high school, let alone go to college. And, uh, he went to 64. He starts Princeton and then everything, he hangs up a picture of the Pope in his dormitory. And then after that, everything changes. His whole world changes. The civil rights movement, black liberation movement, the Vietnam War. Um, you know, everything turns around. And um, after college, he travels around South America. He goes to cut sugarcane in uh, support of the Cuban Revolution and in uh, uh, the Van Cerrimos Brigade. I meet him. He comes back to uh, New York City. He comes back to, he's in Hoboken. And I am working in the post office and he meets, uh, I meet him and he's, uh, he meets some activists in, in working in workplaces in, uh, New Jersey. And he decides that that's something that he wants to do. He meets Theodore W. Allen and is deeply influenced we, as we both were by Allen's writings, um, on the nature of white supremacy and its role that it had played in uh, not just merely like a social construct, that's a common euphemism used to describe it nowadays, but that it has a particular role to play as a social control, as a bourgeois social control formation. That's what it was invented for. And uh, Alan went on to write a number of books uh, about this, the invention of the white race. Um, and Alan, Alan put forward this idea that, you know, you know, Looking at American history, it took three main periods, the Reconstruction, the Populist Era in the 1930s that Allen was involved with, the CIO, uh, he was a former coal miner, UMW uh, union leader. Um, and he said, you know, you look back on American history and you can see at each major uprising, when the capitalist crisis hits and things get really tough for people, there is a momentary unity across racial lines. And then... You know, as the crisis sort of like winds its way out, uh, the bourgeoisie intervenes to reestablish the what Alan called the white skin privilege system. And but and reinforcing the system of privileges is the basis upon which they sort of break up the movements and reestablish social control, which is the basis for making money. You can't make money unless you control the people. Anyway, Jeff was very influenced as I was. And uh, we tried to uh, put this into practice in the workplace. And Jeff became, Jeff was a um, a natural born leader. He was just, uh, you know, very outgoing and friendly and gregarious. And uh, people just warmed to him. He was just a great speaker. Um, and, you know, we went into the post office and, you know, Ted had this idea, solidarity forever means privileges never. So what did that mean in the workplace? Well, that meant that, you know, Jeff, well, we, Jeff would say, uh, we would say, uh, you know, if, if the boss, if the bosses are giving overtime to just to the white workers, we got to fight that. If the bosses are just giving light duty assignments to 
because uh, it was a, an agreement that they had to give light duty assignments to pregnant women. But if they're only giving preg- if they're only giving these light duty assignments to the white women and not to the black women, we have to oppose that. So this was this idea of the privilege system being used to slice and dice and divide workers. And Jeff went right at that. And uh, we went, we, we fought against the bad contracts. Um, Jeff was fired in 1978, leading a, a, a fight against a postal contract. He got his job back and proceeded to become a leader in the mail handlers union locally and nationally, leading many struggles uh, against white supremacy for you know, racial justice, racial equality, for solidarity amongst the workers. Solidarity forever meant privileges never. That's what his basic approach was, that he he adopted. He was influenced by Theodore W. Allen. Right. And, um, and can you and, talk a little bit both about how uh, Jeff was able to do this scholarship while also uh, working a full-time so job he was at the a, post he was office? A, he, was, he, was a union, he was a union official. Uh-huh. He was elected to positions. And he starts to, um, I think it was, I guess, in the early 80s, I had, I had been, I got fired from the post office and I didn't get my job back. Uh, in the early 80s, he began a, uh, a graduate program at Columbia University, starting to read history. And of course, influenced by Theodore W. Allen, he was going to try to continue this study of American history to look at these, uh, look at the role that white supremacy and the white racial privilege system had played in American history in different periods. He wanted to, you know, look into this more. He comes across uh, a person. He reads uh, a description by uh, J.A. Rogers. Uh, J.A. Rogers writes, he describes uh, Hubert, it's the first, because Jeff didn't know anything about Hubert Harrison, but in the course of his reading, he says, he comes across this quote, J.A. Rogers, author of The World's Great Men of Color. He writes, um, Hubert Harrison was not only the foremost African-American intellect of his time, but one of America's greatest minds. No one worked more seriously and indefatigably to, the, to enlighten his fellow men. None of the African-American leaders of his time had a saner and more effective program. Who is Hubert Harrison? And that piques his interest, and he begins to read everything that he can about Hubert Harrison, and it turns out, he was quite a formidable leader. He was kind of well-known leading leader in the early part of the 20th century. But he had been sort of disappeared. And he was based so, in Harlem, right? He was based in Harlem. He was born in St. Croix. He comes to Harlem at the height of the Nader, like around, I think it's 1900 or maybe 1901. And uh, he, he, you know, takes advantage of any educational programs. He was sort of like a quite a brilliant person. And Alan, uh, 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 Jeff writes uh, this two-volume history about him. Starting off first, before he writes the history, he writes, say, in in 2001, he comes out with a reader. In other words, Harrison was a prolific writer. Uh, And his articles had been, like I say, disappeared. Modern radicals, you know, hardly, who who is this guy, right? And he came out with this reader in 2001 that was, you know, really sort of like set people's minds like who is this guy so and he continued by night 2001 he wrote his first volume of his biography now in the course of this he makes contact harrison died young he died uh, in 1927 he was in his maybe he was 43 he was in his 40s and um he had children 
living in Harlem. Uh, and Jeff comes in contact with the family members. His daughter, we have a picture here in the book, uh, his daughter and husband had maintained, had held on to Harrison's papers. And they shared them with Jeff. And Jeff turned himself into an archivist because these are, these are papers that were being preserved in Harlem apartments. He turns himself into an archivist and he works with the family to place these papers in the uh, Columbia, uh, Columbia University archive, um, many of which you can access online today. Uh, he writes his, he writes his doctoral thesis on Harrison and, uh, he gets taken out to dinner by Harrison's daughter. Um, and she hands him Harrison's diary. And Jeff realizes that he's got, cause he had been sort of cut off in 1918, but Harrison lives another 10 was 10 years and is very active at home. And so Jeff says, I have to write this second volume. I have the family has had entrusted me with his diary. I have all the family, you know, all these archives. And he writes the, the, um, the second volume, which comes out in, t- in 2020. Um, just, uh, some of just, I just, I, I know you won't have, don't have much time, but, um, I just wanted to read a couple of the quotes from Harrison and contained in the reader, contained in the, in the, in the biographies. Here he is, uh, Harrison is writing for the New York Call. This is like, uh, I think he's writing this in 2012. Harrison is the leading African-American Socialist Party organizer in 2012. And he's writing- You mean in 1912? I'm I'm sorry, in in 1912, sorry. He's one of the leading spokespersons uh, for organizers for Debs' campaign. And, uh, but you know, he comes to be critical of the Socialist Party's view um, failure to really take up the struggle for uh, equal rights against lynching, all of these programs that he's trying to get the Socialist Party to take up. Because at that point, um, you know, he said that the Republican Party had totally dropped the ball as far as the defender of African-Americans, uh, civil liberties and rights. Right. It's, it, but they were still trying to claim to be, oh, we're the only party for the uh I mean, the only, only, the only people, only African Americans could vote at that time were in the North because they had been disenfranchised pretty much in the South. But, uh, so, uh, but people are breaking away. People are disenchanted with the inaction, uh, of, of the Republican Party. And so, so Du Bois is, I mean, um, Harrison is going into the party and saying, become this, become, you know, pick, be the torchbearers for the struggle for racial equality in America. Because the Republicans aren't doing it, and you you know make a special effort to organize in the African American communities, they don't do it, and eventually he breaks with the the, the, the socialist party. But here he writes in two thousand, I think it's two thousand twelve. He writes, "Okay, we, we are running." Okay, let me just read this quote. He says two quotes quickly. Politically, the Negro is the touchstone of the modern democratic idea. The presence of the Negro puts our democracy to the proof and reveals the falsity of it. Another another quote from this is after he's left the party. Uh, he's writing for the New Negro. As long as the color line exists, all the perfume he's writing. This is like around World War One. All the perfumed protestations of democracy on the part of the white race must be simply downright lying. The cant of quote democracy end quote is intended as dust in the eyes 
of white voters. Uh, so, you know, Jeff reads this stuff and he says, this man is a brilliant writer, a brilliant critic of uh, white, white supremacy, and he devotes the rest of his life to Allen and Harrison. For further information, go to jeffreybperry.net. His website has a host of resources about Theodore W. Allen and, and um, Hubert Harrison. Right. And, and before we go, just one more quick question, which is we've been through a, a huge uh, upsurge of uh, uh, racial justice protests and other protests in recent years, the George Floyd uprising. And we, we've see, also seen this backlash and this uh, resurgence of copaganda um, and backlash against Black Lives Matter. Uh, how does that fit into the uh, uh, the narratives uh, that Harrison and Theodore Allen and, and Jeffrey Perry uh, explored in their work? Well, I think that there, there's, there's, it's following a pattern in U.S. history. Uh, you know, here we have a major economic crisis, major economic downturn, and, uh, you know, life is hard for people. Life is increasingly hard for many, for the past, you know, decades, but it's getting increasingly hard. And to forego the possibility of, uh, joint you know, mass struggles. It's very, which, which we saw, we saw a lot of young working class European Americans out on those demonstrations. But to forego that is the counter revolution and to form the shape of the counter revolution in America. And it is, it was that in 1968. And it's, it's that today. The race card is played. The, the appeal to white supremacy, the appeal to white, to the white racial privilege system, to try to break any move towards solidarity, towards a common struggle. And I think that that's what's playing out now. And it's being fought over. It's being fought out. It's not like written stone. It can go either way. But, um, I think that that's the, it points to the centrality of the fight against white supremacy, which was the main, uh, the main theme of Allen. And um, which and and which Jeffrey tried to also, uh, you know, take up that fight. Right. Well, we'll have to leave it there. But Sean Ahern, a longtime friend of a uh, 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 scholar and activist, uh, Jeffrey Perry. Thank you so much for joining us today on WBAI Radio. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. All right. We will be back after this short break uh, with our uh, third and final segment where we'll uh, talk about the Workers United Film Festival, which is coming up shortly.
That was the opening of Colors by Pharaoh Sanders. Sanders passed away in Saturday on Saturday in Los Angeles at the age of 81. He was a beloved avant-garde saxophonist who played on iconic albums with Don Cherry, Sun Ra, John, and Alice Coltrane, and many more. Sanders really was a free jazz at its heart. He slept in cinemas and listened to jazz outside of the clubs because he couldn't afford it in the 60s and 70s in New York when the streets were brimming with new experimental sounds bred out of old bebop jazz. Sanders was gigging basically until his death at 81 and and came out with his last album just last year in 2021 called Promises, which I encourage everyone to listen to. It's really um, incredible. He, He was a brilliant artist who portrayed how music is a language for sensations that we cannot define with words more than almost anybody else. Um, and I just want to shout out an article um, on The Guardian published yesterday called A Church with Open Doors, The Ecstatic Power of Pharaoh Sanders, written by Jennifer Lucy Allen. And in it, she describes the opening of his debut album, Karma, which came out in 1969, saying his saxophone enters like robes on regal carpets, trailed by a lush forest of shakers, bells and flutes, and followed by vocal exaltations. So rest in great peace, Pharaoh Sanders. Um, and uh, now moving on to a little bit of pitching, I want to say that music like Pharaoh Sanders, free jazz, avant-garde jazz, uh, the subculture of music, it, it finds a home in WBAI. It's not that we just promote the subculture of news and independent news, but we promote independent music. Up until COVID, uh, music- musicians of the like of Pharaoh Sanders, Sun Ra, and much more current people um, would play, you know, at the WBI offices. And um, the way that we are able to promote such independent media, whether in the form of music or news, is because we have no corporate control, which means that we are listener funded and that we are asking you to donate today, whatever you can to WBAI, whether it's five, 10, 50, 1000, if you have it laying around, please donate, you can call the number 212-209-2950. That's 212 212- Two zero nine two nine five zero to keep this station going or go online to give the number two WBAI.org. That's give the number two WBAI.org. And uh, we don't like to ask for money all the time. And we wish this weren't the way that, uh, that the finances of media work, but it is. So please help keep us on the air and uh, call in at 212-209-2950 or online at give the number two WBAI.org to keep those radical airwaves flowing across the greater New York area. That's right. And when you do, you support all sorts of amazing shows on this station. Uh, obviously, you're supporting uh, the independent news hour and all the, the voices we can bring on this show uh, every week, as well as uh, so many other uh, public affairs and news shows, and as Amba was saying, uh, music and cultural shows on WBAI that you're not going to find on other uh, uh, radio station or uh, on other media outlets that are much more corporatized. So this is a real 
a treasure we have here. It, as we know, WBA is often in financial stress. It certainly needs more support at this very moment, 212-209-2950, or give number two, WBAI.org. Uh, make a one-time donation or even better, become a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 a month. You get all sorts of awesome benefits for, for becoming a WBAI buddy, and you help uh, stabilize the finances of this station when the, the many uh, hundreds and hundreds of WBAI buddies the station have are really the backbone of the station and it help keep it uh, going through good times and bad. 212-209-2950. Give number two, WBAI.org. And uh, we're going to move on now, but uh, please keep, uh, please act on the, if you can and give us a call or go to give number two, WBAI.org. But we are going to move on to our third segment and we're uh, going to be talking about labor and culture. The 11th annual Workers Unite Film Festival begins on Friday, October 7th at Cinema Village Theater in Lower Manhattan. It will be Worker United Film Festival's first in-person festival since the, the pandemic began. It comes at a time when we're seeing an upsurge in labor organizing and strikes, and labor unions are more popular in public opinion polls these days than any time in more than 50 years. Uh, joining us today to talk about this year's uh, film festival is its executive director Andrew Tilson. Andrew, welcome to WBAI Radio. It looks like we don't have Where's Andrew. Andrew, hi. hi. Um, <laughs> it looks like we don't have Andrew with us at the moment. Um, hopefully, we can get him back. Here oh, is. here he is. Okay, great. And we are also joined by uh, William Hooker and Sean Claffey, who have films in the um, festival who will be speaking with momentarily. Right. Andrew. Welcome, Andrew. I am here. Okay. So, nice you. yeah. So, uh, we have a, a, a great, we have you with us. And uh, of course, we want to hear a little bit about this year's festival. And then we're going to hear from a, a couple of people who have uh, movies in the festival. Uh, including William Herc- Hooker, we just uh, briefly heard there- from there. But, uh, Andrew, uh, for starters, can you just tell us a little bit about what Workers Unite Film Festival is and uh, uh, your thoughts on it this year as uh, we see this upsurge in labor activism and strikes and the popularity of labor unions to be doing a, a festival like this at a time uh, when labor is hot? Definitely. So um, we're thrilled to have survived during through the pandemic and we're back for our second decade, which is unbelievable to me. So here, thanks to all you guys. And um, well, the festival is basically the premise is it's a celebration of global labor solidarity here at home around the globe. From the very beginning, our mission has been to show that workers need to get organized, they need to organize around the world, and they need to form kind of networks and partnerships through whatever means necessary in order to put pressure on the one half of 1% who mess it up for the rest of us. So we have been continuing to try and tell those stories. This year we have an amazing crop of movies. Uh, We get better and better movies each year, and in fact we have quite a few shorts exactly about Amazon Labor Union, Starbucks uh, Workers Union, all over the country, different locals, uh, UPS uh, fighting back against their kind of bizarre working conditions and their trucks. 
and a variety of films that show how people can win and get organized. Right. And uh, can you talk about your your opening night, what you're going to kick off with on October 7th? Um, On our opening night, we're going to kick off. uh, We actually connected up as a great example of what you're talking about in the upsurge, a whole group of uh, UAW members who are adjuncts at Parsons School of Design right around the corner from the film festival. Uh, We noticed that they were striking outside, not striking, but they were picketing outside and kind of angry about what's happened at Parsons, where the university president makes a phenomenal salary and they get stiffed, as most adjuncts do. So they're going to be coming in to watch several movies, one of which is about a big steelworker strike in Pennsylvania, which John Fetterman was involved in um, as, uh, I believe, attorney general in the state at one point before he ran for Senate, called Local 1196, a steelworker strike, a successful strike uh, organizing and strike film about the L.A. teachers called When We Fight. And then uh, later that night, uh, we're going to have Sean's incredible movie, Americon, which really lays out the whole story for us. And that's going to be together with uh, shorts about the UPS drivers and a company that does not care. So that's opening night. And uh, we have some really amazing shorts. We have a short, Not Machine Enough. We have really creative people around the world now working on this stuff. Right. And, and there's a lot. There's all of that to look forward to and more. I include everybody to go online um, to the Workers Unite Film Festival website, which we'll uh, shout out later. But um, there's uh, a, a lot of really, really interesting films. Um, I wish I had 84 hours in each day to watch them all. Well, the good thing um, is that we're a week. We, we go for a week virtual, too. So anything you miss, you can watch on your own TV at home or laptop. Right, which I actually was lucky to do over COVID when um, there was no in-person um, gathering. But uh, we are also joined by avant-garde jazz luminary William Hooker, who we're honored to be joined um, by and has a oh, film in the festival. His 2021 film, The Lost Generation Outside of the Mainstream, is an effort to elaborate on the history of the many musicians of the 1970s whose music has gone quote unquote, unrecognized by larger audience. So it's particularly fitting to have you on, William, because we were just listening to Pharaoh Sanders. Um, but talk about the import of remembering this generation of avant-garde musicians who created rhythms that arguably have pushed the envelope most ever. Uh, ever potentially <laughs> and, and briefly also uh where can we look for these kinds of sounds today uh because a lot of the people in your film are living legends and luckily we can still see them play in the city you have andrew lamb in there who has been playing all over the east village in the past couple weeks sometimes for free um but where's the youth in jazz <laughs> is it is it a dying genre no, uh, hi, thank you all for inviting me. It's not a dying genre. As a matter of fact, it's uh, up and running and, um, it's played, uh, throughout the world. And right now, uh, many of the people that are in this film are either, uh, on, on tour in Europe or mm-hmm. they're on the West Coast. And, uh, and, uh, I myself am going to be, uh, in, uh, a lot of places in America. So what's going on is that we're just trying to open up this knowledge about the people of the 70s, uh, preferably, that um, were um, the 
forebearers of this music. And, uh, just, I don't know what to tell you. I'm very, very happy that the, that the film even happened. And, uh, we also have a great podcast, which has, uh, at least 30 people in the podcast. We have about 10 people that are, the, uh, um, manufacturers of the music and people who back the music. And we have about five listeners. So, uh, it's a, it's an hour and, uh, I would say an hour and 50 minutes. So, um, it's going to be a great evening. I'm going to have some, uh, some guests there with us so you can speak, uh, directly to them. So uh there's nothing else I can tell you about it other than uh I'm just shocked that it happened. Six o'clock on Sunday, that's the important part. Six o'clock Sunday <laughs> the ninth program. Yes. It's online, but yeah. A nice way to a nice way for a holiday weekend if you're in the city, a fantastic way to catch up on this whole history, which has totally been underserved. So Right. We and we also have uh Sean Claffey on the air with us who directed Americond, a film that, uh, quote, examines the hidden struggles of American families, the calculated political maneuvers of the elite, and the long overdue uprising of American workers. Sean, uh, can you talk about your film? It sounds like a call to action. Sure. Uh, thank you very much for having us. Um, yeah, we, you know, when we started about three years ago on the film, we uh, realized that income inequality was a, a big threat to uh, our democracy and to our uh, the middle class in this country and past the middle class. And as we started following different families around the country and uh, activists like Chris Walls and Derek Palmer with the ALU, um, we discovered that it's much, much worse than we thought. Um, and, um, yeah. you know, basically we had, uh, we drove 38,000 miles across the country interviewed, you know, dozens of, of people, um, you know, six different families. And we just kind of, um, we attempted to do what others haven't done is really identify the problems um, and the solutions uh, and the causation. Um, people don't really realize that there's been a redistribution of $50 trillion from the bottom 90% to the 1% of the last 40 years. And it's all been planned. And uh, there's nowhere in history that a country with this level of income inequality didn't devolve into authoritarianism, a police state or a revolution. So I think that it's no matter where you sit in the, you know, um, you can't ignore this. Um, it's probably the biggest, biggest existential threat we have, because if you can't feed your kids, you don't care about climate change. You're not going to do anything about it. So you have to solve both these problems at the same time. And uh, we realized that the counterbalance to this is organ organizing in unions. And we didn't really set out to make, per se, uh, a, a union film. But every expert we interviewed, you know, we were like, what's the solutions? Unions. What's the solutions? Union. When we uh, even. And why are unions the solution or a, a important part of the solution? Well, because it's a, a countervailing. Um, so to, you can have numbers to, uh, offset money, mm -hmm. right? Especially in, in a democracy or, or what's left of it, uh, we have here, um, that, um, the masses can affect change. And by, uh, organizing unions, you can collectively bargain and get better wages. And really the, 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 
you know, solution to income inequality is better wages. And, uh, you know, they'll argue raising wages kills jobs. But, you know, in the film we show, if no one has any money, who's going to buy the stuff? Um, you know, so you, you, you basically have this, uh, this, this, this false argument. They, they try to, to negotiate uh, and tell us that there's not enough money to go around. And, the, and there, there's an incredible amount of money. Yeah, well, just watch their stock buybacks. Yeah, that's for sure. There's oh. plenty of money going around in smaller and smaller circles. Um, well, I think that everybody who's interested in seeing that film uh, can see it on October 7th, opening night. Correct, Andrew? Will you just give all of our listeners loud and clear uh, one more time the details about uh, seeing the the films in this festival if they'd like to. Well, you definitely you uh, Cinema Village, October 7th yes. to the 13th at Cinema Village, and then different events around town and virtual from the 14th to the 21st, where besides these two incredible films, we have close to 40 programs coming on and, um, and, a, and a staged reading of a new play called Shermantown, about uh, wiping Confederate monuments uh, off the face of the South, including in Stone Mountain, Georgia, a very powerful play. You can go to bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash capital T-I-X capital W-U-F-F, woof 11, to check out tickets on Eventbrite and go to the website at any time to find anything out about the festival and where to buy tickets. But it's uh, workersunitefilmfestival.org. Okay. Well, we'll have to leave it there, but uh, we thank you, Andrew Tilson, Executive Director of Workers, Workers Unite Film Festival, as well as William Hooker and Sean Claffey uh, for joining us this evening on the Independent News Hour. Um, we have to go now, uh, but I uh, want to thank our board operator, Reggie Johnson, as well as uh, Katie Pruden for a sound from the field t- earlier in the show. And uh, we'll be off next week, but we'll be back same time in two weeks on Tuesday, October 11th. And our musical outro, Amba? We'll continue listening to Colors by Pharaoh Sanders. Thanks, guys. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thank you all. See you at the film. And with tears of joy, the
mic check for Cat Radio Cafe. Uh, testing. Testing. Tune into Cat Radio Cafe Tuesday night at 9 here on WBAI. I'm Janet Coleman. I'm David Dozer. The Displaced Playwright. On Tuesday, September 27th at 9 p.m., we'll be joined by writer and film critic Thelma Adams to discuss Paris Police 1900, an eight-part historical French crime drama set in Paris at the turn of the 20th century, the Belle Epoque, in the swirl of anti-Semitism that followed the Dreyfus Affair. Tuesday night at 9 here on WBAI. Cat Radio Cafe. Hey, the cats drink coffee. With a French crawler hand delivered by the Paris police. Ah, the true meaning of protect and serve. Wow. If you're filing taxes, you may be eligible for some pretty unique deductions. For instance, there are write-offs for clarinet lessons. Or, if you hired your cat for pest control, apparently there's a tax break for that too. But, if you don't think you'd qualify for pet-related deductions, you could just donate a vehicle to WBAI. It's easy, free, and tax-deductible. Here's how it works. Call 866-WBAI-CAR. That's 866-922-4227. Or complete the online form at WBAI.org slash donate your car. From there, our vehicle donation support team will take care of everything, including the pickup, sale, and provide you with a donation receipt. If your vehicle sells for more than $500, you'll also receive a 1098C tax form. So, instead of writing off your cat patrol, you can support programs like the Cat Radio Cafe by donating a car, truck, RV, or boat. Call 866-WBAI-CAR or visit wbai.org slash donate your car to get started. 